0: There's never a bad time for equality, is there?
1: Saying that it will come with the time while well, it hasn't come, we've waited enough.
0: EU Confidential brings you a special new mini-series on women.
1: Women, women, power, power, power and, and the, the EU, EU election.
0: The XX Factor features both politicians and candidates. Women are risk-takers, people forget that. Female leaders in the European Union.
2: You can really feel the change.
0: You're listening to The XX Factor.
3: Welcome to the XX Factor, where we discuss women, power and the EU election. I'm Naomi O'Leary, I'm a correspondent with Politico and I host the Irish Passport podcast. I'm hosting the XX Factor this week and in this episode we are going to be hearing from the women who are shaking up Irish politics. It's an exciting moment in Irish politics for women. Last year's referendum that ended a ban on abortion by a landslide brought a generation of young women into political activism and that momentum has been continuing. Now, with European and local elections in May and a potential general election not far off either, we're asking whether this is the moment when Irish women take on the country's steep gender and diversity imbalance in politics. In this episode, you'll hear from Irish MEP Mairead McGuinness, who's Vice President of the European Parliament with Ireland's ruling Fine Gael Party and a Member of Parliament since 2004. She told Politico's XX Factor that she would consider running for president of the next European Parliament following a failed run at the job in 2016. Of
4: course, absolutely. Lots of people are talking about who's going to get what job and sometimes you think it's already divvied out and, you know, he'll get that job and he'll get the other job and it's the he bit that's kind of interesting.
3: We'll then hear from some trailblazing women at the local and national level, like Hazel Chu, who, if elected, will become the first Irish-Chinese woman to
0: hold political office in Ireland. Being the first is uh, a huge honour, I think. And if I get elected, I think I would be privileged. But at the same time, I really hope I'm not the exception. I think this needs to be more normal.
3: But first, let's talk through some crazy current headlines. With Brexit on the cliff edge and women's leadership very much centre stage, to help me get to grips with it all, we have regular EU confidential contributor and fellow Irishwoman, Alva Finn. Alva, it's great to have you on. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Hi, all good. So I mentioned women's leadership being centre stage there. And what I meant is something I've noticed recently, which was the contrast between Theresa May, who's basically being slated by everybody for her incompetent handling of Brexit, and the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. So I don't know if you noticed the clips that went viral of Ardern's kind of decisive and compassionate response to the horrendous massacre of
5: worshippers at a mosque by a white nationalist. What was your take on that, Alva? It was really such an example of women in leadership. And you know that women in politics, we actually play... A different kind of role there's a lot of research coming out now about the role that women play in politics they reach across party lines but I don't think we've necessarily seen this kind of female leadership before compassion uh, and that's something that we have a lot of I think in Ireland uh, and I think that one thing that's missing from Theresa May's Brexit plan is compassion for people who are going to be affected so I think you're right it's a very stark juxtaposition those two types of female leadership and I think what we really want more of is compassionate leadership and that's the role that women can really excel at in politics in my view. I think having
3: these two examples that are so different kind of demonstrates the benefits of having a diversity of women leaders because if you only have one (laughs) or you only have one kind of reference to make it kind of traps aspiring women politicians in a way in always being referred back to this one person or also being kind of reduced to their gender when it comes to describing their political style. Have you been following the candidates as they emerge for the European elections and and what do you make of the gender balance that uh, seems to be
5: emerging so far? Some of them are very exciting you know I like the I was looking through them yesterday and and they're quite colourful you know Uh, I was looking at Gillian Breen she kind of sells herself as an inner city dub um, she's running with people before profit. What I am a little bit concerned about is that the messages are very much the same, I think, for a lot of the women. It's very much social issues, also anti-austerity, which we had at the last election as well. And We're really not into the campaigning yet. I'm very interested to see how they set themselves apart. But the gender ban, it could be worse, I think. I think we'll still have a good cohort of female MEPs heading to the Parliament after the elections.
3: You were involved in the campaign to repeal the abortion ban. And now the battle has moved north into Northern Ireland, where, of course, abortion remains illegal. My impression is that there is simply a like a wall in front of campaigners for actually getting legislative change on this issue. Could you update us on what the situation is at the moment?
5: Yeah, I think it's still a little bit hopeless. There was the whole now hashtag now for an eye campaign, which kind of moved the fight to Westminster. But yeah, that hasn't really yielded as much fruit, I, I think, as activists would have liked. I think everybody's really looking at, uh, to see what happens in Brexit and then also looking to the republic.
3: Of course. And the anti-abortion side is not going away either in the Republic as well, but continuing the fight on different levels, whether it's targeting clinics that might potentially offer the services or through other methods. Alva, it was terrific to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming
5: on. Thank you very much, Naomi. It was a pleasure.
3: Next up on the podcast, we have Mairead McGuinness, member of the European Parliament for the Midlands Northwest Constituency with Ireland's ruling Fine Gael Party. Fine Gael is one of the two vaguely centrist parties that have long dominated Irish politics and it's part of the European People's Party. McGuinness recently sat down with X Factor producer Christina González to talk about her rise in the ranks of the European Parliament, the impact of Brexit and her intention to throw her hat in the ring to be president of the next European Parliament.
4: My name is Mairead McGuinness. I came from a small farm in County Louth. I live on a farm in County Meath now. I was first elected in 2004 to the European Parliament and I'm here right now, as first vice president. My background wasn't politics. My family were not political. I always had a huge interest in elections when I was young. I would follow them and watch counts. So I obviously had some little bug around politics. But I was a journalist for a really long time, from 1980 right up to I got elected in 2004. And I did print, I did um, television, and I did radio. So, you know, not always in politics. And I entered perhaps politics at a later age than most. And I often think that we perhaps or you know think maybe incorrectly that you've got to start a political career early i don't think so i think we need a mix of age and gender and all sorts of people with different backgrounds to get involved in politics
1: i'm curious because you've been an elected member of parliament since 2004 and really risen through the ranks serving now as first vice president of the european parliament can you speak a little bit about how things perhaps have changed here
4: in brussels particularly for women Gosh, I don't know if I can answer that question because I'm not so sure that things have changed. I suppose it's important to know my background. I come from a large family. There were eight children, so five girls and three boys. My mother was a very strong woman and and my father very strong, but a quieter person. But they were very determined that we would all have equal opportunities in terms of education and choice. And I suppose it's only on reflection again that you realise, particularly my mother, maybe she didn't get the chances that she could have really worked uh, with uh, but she wanted to make sure that we weren't denied those opportunities and I think because she achieved a great deal she was a farmer but she was very successful in that farming and very proud of what she did with my father that I never felt that I couldn't do something so I was never of that mindset to say I wonder who'll stop me trying to do this I know some people come to life and come to issues like that so you know I would never be put off I might feel a bit anxious and wonder, am I going too far here? I remember when I was running for um, one of the positions within the EPP group, it was a surprise. I just decided I'd do it. I didn't have a chat, so I hadn't. The network worked, but I made a pretty good speech and they remembered me the next time. So I always say, again, when I'm talking to young people, sometimes you have to fail to succeed Mm -hmm. and not to be put off. In fact, you you learn a great deal more by not winning the first time. Mm -hmm. When you come to um, this rising through the ranks, Thing. I suppose you would see it that way. I just believe that if you can achieve something and in, I particularly think it's important for our country that you do try as hard as you can to be in places where you can influence uh, and where your voice matters. So I would not be put off, even though it was a bit challenging on occasion. I wanted to be president of the European Parliament. And of course, my friend Antonio Tajani, um, my Italian friend, he won the race. I came second. But I got a pretty good vote for first vice president. So, you know, you you kind of roll with these things. I'm a great believer in if you're in something and lots of people kind of look at the downsides. It's not that I always look on the bright side, but I certainly try not to focus on what might pull you back. Not to say I don't notice these things. Mm. I notice a lot of things that bother me. I think that women don't network in the same way as men do. And therefore, that's why perhaps now at this more mature age, I'm a little wiser than I was at 17. I thought at 17, by the time I was 25, the world would be equal. It's not. I'm a great deal older than 17 now, and I realise that there are barriers there that we don't even know exist. And their barriers both come from the way the system works, maybe within women ourselves, that we are not as confident as we need to be. I keep saying to women when there's a, a group picture been taken, I have... Nine times out of 10, it is the woman or the women who say, it doesn't matter if I'm not in the picture. And I say it does matter. If you're not in the picture, then we don't see women in photographs. We don't see them engaged in politics at local or national or European level. So I'm not fond of having pictures taken, but I stand in the picture, and I think that's really important. If I can pick
1: up on something you just mentioned, there, we have to ask the question: Would you consider running again for a president
4: of the European Parliament? Of course, absolutely. Um, I mean, lots of people are talking about who's going to get what job, and sometimes you think it's already divvied out, and you know he'll get that job and he'll get the other job. And there's it's the he bit that's kind of interesting. Mm. What's also interesting is that there have been two women presidents of the European Parliament. The first, 40 years ago. The, the last time, 20 years ago. So I'm kind of thinking, I think, you know, 20 year cycles is not good enough. But I also think that men and women have to get over this idea that it's our turn or your turn. I think we have to be absolutely treated as equals. And I suppose, again, when I was 17, I didn't want to be, you know, this idea of quotas would have disturbed me or this idea of the token woman. Uh, That really bothers me. But actually, in Ireland, we have to have quotas now for political parties to encourage women into politics. I think, though, when you look at how we're encouraging women, we want to make politics a bit more attractive. I mean, there's lots about political life that is really difficult. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, we're saying to young women and that's absolutely vital. We need to get young women involved. But Nancy Pelosi, what age is Nancy Pelosi? Can you remember? She's hugely older than me, which is great, but she's an amazing politician. She had five children. She got involved in active politics after her children were mature. We think, you know, that women at that stage don't have a contribution to make. They absolutely do. I would be remiss if we didn't ask you about Brexit. Can you give us a sense of how you see this playing out? It's been extraordinary how much time and energy and political capital we've all had to put into this issue. I think it's really sad from the United Kingdom's point of view. The deep divisions in society reflected in the parliament, the divisions within political parties. I take no pleasure in uh, the malaise that is the House of Commons at the moment. I have friends in the House Mm -hmm. of Commons and they're deeply upset by what's happening. I have great UK friends here in the European Parliament Mm -hmm. and I'm really sad that they will go if, when, Brexit happens. If you look at the detail, I think that we all need to learn from what David Cameron did wrong. And he did everything wrong. He called uh, a referendum for the wrong reasons. He was ill prepared. His campaign was not good. And he lost. But he had no plan for what would happen when he lost. And in fact, Theresa May is lost in all of this. She took over. She called an election. She didn't win an outright majority. She's now supported by the DUP, who are not reflective of... The wider society in Northern Ireland but are powerful. So it, you could not write this story if you were trying to do it. You could not actually imagine the twists and turns that have made Brexit, oh, an incredible political drama which would have incredibly bad consequences if it goes wrong. And I suppose we're all very frightened that it might go wrong by accident. We are really trying to avoid that. We're working night and day to avoid it. Can you give us a sense specifically
1: of your constituency, which Mm. is touched very specifically by this issue? Can you elaborate a bit more on the implications? Yeah,
4: I suppose I never thought about the fact that I grew up in a county bordering Northern Ireland, County Louth. Sadly, I lived through the worst of the troubles and was aware as a teenager. So when the Brexit thing happened, I would always be driving through Northern Ireland to meet my colleagues, my constituents in Donegal. And it never occurred to me that anything would change. And of course, you, you knew you were in Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, because the Google Maps would turn to miles and you know, then you would see UK coming up, which is strange. But it was all irrelevant before Brexit. Now it's darkly relevant and that people who live along that corridor who have enjoyed 20 years of peace, but also an ease of business, just, just a nicer way to live... And who treasure that and where wounds were being healed, not fully because, you know, the drama and the the memory of the troubles is still there. What the big fear is that there would be physical barriers to movement, but also barriers in minds and hearts. And I get a lot of that conversation with um, people who get in contact with me. Businesses like the dairy farmers, the dairy cooperatives, you know, milk from Northern Ireland comes across, is processed, goes back up, goes into Baileys. Lambs from Northern Ireland are processed in our factories in Ireland. So the interconnectedness of our territory, naturally enough, it's an island, is absolute. So when Brexit happened, I think there was a real, I mean, it was actually quite frightening when we realised what might be the worst possible scenario. The idea of borders reappearing is just unthinkable. And I've said it, and I absolutely mean it, that I could never vote for anything that would see any physical infrastructure reappear. So there's a lot of concern around that. I think people in Northern Ireland have a really bad situation at the moment. They have no assembly. So they've no political voice, they've no chamber where their concerns can be addressed. And my office has tried very hard and we have succeeded and we work hard with people in Northern Ireland and on the border region to bring them here to talk to Michel Barnier and his team. So that at least we're a a place where they can get support. And, you know, the saddest meetings I've had are with young people, young people who hadn't voted. So they feel that their future has been determined without them having a voice by people, particularly in in England, perhaps an older generation who have a rosy and romantic notion of the past. But denying them a future where they're free to roam across Europe, free to study, where, you know, Europe, this entity of 28 countries is much stronger globally than a Europe that disintegrates. And I think my biggest worry at the moment while Brexit is on our minds is that it points to disintegration rather than integration. Mm. And I would not like to think that this is a start of something. I hope we can stop that. I think the way Brexit has evolved will probably stop it in its tracks because other countries see how impossible it is to leave the European Union and have all the benefits. I think the UK still have this very strange notion that they can walk away, not pay the bill and take all the goodies.
1: And if I could ask one question about the different political nature of Ireland domestically Mm -hmm. as compared to the EU Mm -hmm. level, can you elaborate perhaps on some of those differences?
4: Actually, I think that's a really good question because I did run for the Irish parliament and I, I wasn't successful. And I was very happy afterwards, which spoke to me about how national politics versus European politics is and works. I think for me here in the European Parliament, if you're determined to work and work hard on specific issues, you actually can make Huge progress. You have five years to, in which to work. You can work with other colleagues who have the same issues. I think national politics is really difficult because my colleagues never know when an election might happen. We we sometimes think you know we're okay for a while, but you never know a snap election can happen. And also, there are very uh, much national immediate demands which can take from dealing with long term issues. And I I actually think that local politics is perhaps the hardest of all because my colleagues were on the council. I mean, they're on the ground all the time. Demands are made of them. And I suppose no more than podcasts and Twitter and Facebook and all of these things that we do now, you know, people get in touch with us instantly and want Mm. instant answers. And sometimes we shouldn't give instant answers. We should give reflective answers. Mm. And I'm not so sure that we do that sufficiently. Do you expect any surprises in this election in May? There's always surprises in elections, I think. There will perhaps be a bigger focus on Europe. But one never knows. I think generally speaking, a lot of my colleagues would say the same, that national issues predominate because we also have our local elections with uh, the European potholes in the local roads, which are fundamental to people and important. They do crop up. But I I have a, a sense this time that because Brexit has made us all aware of what Europe is, how it functions, what the customs union is, there'll be more questions about the future of Europe. But also what I try to do is demystify the whole thing I think we've created this idea that Europe is far away and confusing now it is all of those things but actually it's no different than the local sports committee the parents association it's a gathering of people some work really well together others are troublemakers but ultimately you have to go to meetings and sort things out for a podcast about women power in the
1: EU election is there anything that you feel we haven't covered in this interview
4: I suppose because I came from that school believing that I was equal, I never thought I wasn't. Um, that was how I was brought up. That it came as a great shock to me when I met women who felt who felt a bit more insecure than I did. In my area of work as a journalist, it was men. Always, because it was farming. Um, So all of the meetings, you might have the occasional woman. I know that my own mother would have gone to those meetings when she was bringing us up. And she did find it difficult because if she said something that wasn't in line with how they all thought, she felt she was being ignored. So I think she would have experienced that. I experienced some of that. But I, I again, I suppose I worked around it in a way. And I think maybe I wouldn't have survived today unless I knew how to work around that. You ignore some of what you get, but you don't forget it. And you use it at other times to make a point that you haven't forgotten it. So it's not that I harbour big grudges or anything, but I, I know what happened in the past on several occasions um, along the way. And what I've always done is I've shared those experiences with other young women in particular, like my own daughters who are 25 and 22, who think that this is not an issue. And I keep saying, "Way, well, hey, when you wake up, in a few years' time or very soon, you will realise this is an issue, that we, when I was a teenager, I think we were more tuned into it as being an issue. When I look at how women portray themselves on social media, particularly young girls, I, I just feel we've gone backwards, you know, that why are we doing this? Why are we in uncomfortable shoes and clothes that are, real freeze in and the guys are in sweaters and flats. You know, why do we do this? And we do it because of all the social pressures that are there. So I suppose you have to be tough to resist all of that and I'm tough. Toughness.
3: Is that what it takes as a woman to make your way in politics? Let's dive a little deeper into the Irish political landscape. Just one in five elected officials in the Irish lower house are women. And that is actually a record
0: high for Ireland. There's only 21% in the Dáil that's women and there, I think there's 21 or 22 in the council that's women and slightly higher in the Shannon as well so that's not a great stat for a country that's that's what half the people out of 4.7 million is are women so I think we still need to do better. That's Hazel Chu
3: speaking. She's National Coordinator and Chair of the Executive of the Green Party and she's running to represent the Pembroke Ward in Dublin in the upcoming local elections.
0: Be it Migrants, be it locals, be it anyone, we need to start opening up access more. So I think a lot of people go, well, we need to encourage women. Um, we need to encourage minorities. No, we need to encourage people in general. So we need to encourage as much activism as possible within our country, but we need to encourage people to take that step forward and actually move into the space where they can help towards legislation towards forming policies as well
3: her parents emigrated to Ireland from Hong Kong in the 1970s and she became a trailblazer first in her own family she became the first person to graduate from university and the first Irish Chinese person to qualify as a barrister if
0: she's elected, she will become the first Irish-Chinese woman to hold political office in Ireland. It was a lot of pressure when media came and said, "Hey, yeah, you're the first person to do this, what do you think? And my thing was, well, hopefully I'm not the last person. So, And it's the same with politics, I think, being the first is uh, a huge honor, I think, and if I get elected, I think I would be privileged. But at the same time, I really hope I'm not the exception. I think this needs to be more normal. I would like it that my daughter looks at it and go, "Ah, fair play to mom. She ran like everyone else did kind of way. So, um, and I like her to think that it's absolutely fine that people like Us would go into anything at all. Go into politics. Go into law. Go be a barrister or a doctor or like do whatever they want to do. So that there are no barriers at the end of the day.
3: Prior to the twenty sixteen general election, just sixteen percent of lawmakers were women. That was the first election when gender quotas came into force, which compelled parties to nominate women. To 30% of general election candidacies or face cuts to their state funding. This is credited with helping to raise the number of women lawmakers to 21%. While the numbers are still low, activists for greater representation feel that change is in the air. We made history. We made history. Feminism is something of a force of the moment in Irish politics. This was exemplified by the grassroots campaign behind the repeal of the constitutional abortion ban by referendum in May last year. I
2: think certainly a turning point.
3: That's Kirin Debuis, CEO of Women for Election, which is a non-profit organisation that works to inspire and equip women to run for office with how-to boot camps on campaigning. Kirin will also be speaking at our Women Rule Summit in Brussels. I recently spoke to her over the phone.
2: That's- very telling is that there are a lot of women coming to those sessions who are new to political life.
3: Debris says that the landmark referendums of 2018 and 2015 to legalise abortion and gay marriage respectively are game changers in Irish politics.
2: It's an historic day in Ireland. The Irish people have voted in favour of scrapping a constitutional ban on abortion.
0: Votes in favour of the proposal. One million, four hundred and twenty-nine thousand, nine hundred and eighty-one. Today is a
2: historic day for Ireland. A quiet revolution has taken place, and today is a great act of democracy. A hundred years since women gained the right to vote, today we as a people have spoken, and we say that we trust women and respect women to make their own decisions and their own choices.
3: Both of those referendums were very much driven by grassroots campaigning. Ordinary people, often friends and family, out walking the streets, knocking on doors house to house from the deepest countryside to the suburbs of Dublin, arguing their case and urging people to register to vote. The campaigns were marked by huge public political engagement, and campaigning was often led by women, serving as a kind of crash course in campaigning for many who perhaps otherwise wouldn't be engaged with politics.
2: There's a lot of women who aren't coming through the usual channels. You know, they haven't been involved in a particular political party for years, but they're coming in fresh to politics, haven't been engaged by a referendum campaign and then want to continue some level of involvement. There's certainly, from what we're seeing, a huge turning
0: point there.
3: And that political energy from the campaigns has not dissipated. From campaigns around consent to women's health care, issues that affect women have remained on the political centre stage. The local elections of May 24th may see a number of trailblazers. Among the women running for election are Malawian asylum seeker Ellie Kisyombe, who has lived in Ireland's controversial direct-provision refugee processing system for eight years. Another is Julia O'Reilly. She's an Irish traveller whose political ambitions were given urgency when discrimination against the ethnic minority unfortunately became a theme in Ireland's 2018 presidential election.
1: I always had interest to do it, but that was the push that I needed. And my focus would be to know the needs of the people, and I do because I know what it is to need and want. And that's what's lacking in politics right now. Everything is about politics. There's no humanitarianism in it, really, and I think that's the basis for anything to work.
3: When just one in five elected representatives are women... What does it mean for the very top leadership positions in Ireland? Well, as you might have guessed, representation is even worse there. We've never had a woman Taoiseach or Prime Minister. Neither of the two biggest parties have ever been led by a woman. And while there have been women ministers, they haven't occupied the big-ticket ministries of Finance, Foreign Affairs and Defence. It's ironic because Ireland was actually one of the earliest places in the world to have a woman cabinet minister, Countess Markovic. And women played a leading role in the establishment of the country as an independent state. Markovic was named minister in 1919, but shockingly there wasn't another female cabinet minister until 1979. If you're interested in hearing more about how that happened, we're going to be going into it in depth on my podcast, The Irish Passport, which I make with my co-presenter, the historian Tim McInerney. Unbelievably, so few were the female ministers in Ireland that in 2016, almost all of the former and current women ministers were able to get together for a dinner party and sit around a single table. It's a scene described by Martina Fitzgerald in her book Madam Politician, which is about Irish women in politics. Fitzgerald, who's a former political correspondent with the national broadcaster RTE, interviewed all surviving 17 of the 19 women who have served as Irish ministers and two former presidents to get to the bottom of why Irish women got left out of political life.
2: The book is about the stories of the 17 surviving women who served as senior ministers in Ireland. Only 19 women have served in that position and the other two, Countess Markovich and also Eileen Desmond, uh, are dead. It all, I also spoke to the two former presidents, Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese, uh, to talk about their experiences in terms of trying to get on the ladder, trying to operate in the corridors of power, and also trying to deal with uh, the added pressures, the unrelenting focus on appearance, various levels of sexism, and also the tug of war of balancing a career and also family life. But it's
3: not all doom and gloom. Fitzgerald sees parallels between the momentum for women candidates in Ireland and the midterm elections in the United States, which were a breakthrough for women.
2: I think if you look at 2018 and you see the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, when you look back at the previous referendums on that issue, women came out and told their stories in a way that never happened before, including female representation. We had gender quotas in 2016. 30% of the candidates had to be women. We don't have gender quotas in 2019 for the local elections, but we have them again obviously in the next general election. But there is now a very hot topic, whether you're in Ireland, whether you're in America and looking at at the changing dynamic of the House of Representatives, that the place of women in politics and public life is now at the fore and you have campaigning groups inside and outside of various parliaments trying to push that forward as a realist because you have an unfinished democracy if you don't have equality in representation.
3: On the next episode of The XX Factor, we look at how women politicians are portrayed in the media.
2: We know every time the doll comes back, there's a focus on what are the women wearing, but there's much more to politics about that, and I don't think men are going to come under that scrutiny. This episode of The XX Factor
3: was produced by Christina Gonzalez and Eileen Shart, with special thanks to Ryan Heath and Andrew Gray. I'm Naomi O'Leary. Thanks so much for listening.